Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to Grace this weekend. Hey, there's some folks in the back looking for seats. If you have one near you, uh, let them know a little bit as they're walking down the aisle and scoot close. Get to know your neighbor. If you're single and they're single, get their phone number. You're both in church. It's a starting point, I'm just saying. Uh, but welcome to Grace. Welcome everybody watching online too. If you were here in the building, you could be meeting your future spouse. And so uh, it's just an incentive to come in and uh, our live sites and, uh, and Montrose as well. So thanks for joining us. Uh, we're in a series right now that we're calling No Additives, No Preservatives, No Artificial Flavors. And what we're doing is uh, we're, we're looking at some ideas, some thoughts that kind of buzz across uh, our screens and our, and our phones, so to say, uh, about different aspects of Christianity. And uh, there's always something new, right? There's always some new idea or some new thought or some new insight. Some of them are wonderful and some of them are super off base. And there's actually nothing really new about those new things happening like that, right? So uh, sometimes these, these ideas are ancient and they get recycled or they've been around a long, long time. Sometimes these ideas are new. They're like a hundred years old or something like that. And they're, but they become per predominant kind of in our thinking and we're exposed to them. And then some of these ideas are out of the blue. Like they just came out of nowhere. Somebody made something up and it just got some traction and got in front of us. And suddenly uh, they're a part of our thinking or a part of our consideration or a part of how other people think about God. So when you're thinking about the Bible or you're thinking about Christ or you're thinking about the Christian life, you have to weigh these ideas and kind of weigh their validity and, uh, and understand if there's something that you should lock onto or something that you should discount and move past. And so this is normal, right? And so every once in a while here at Grace, we'll, we'll notice that some of those things are getting traction around us and we'll kind of take a pause and say, well, let's, let's analyze them a little bit. Let's take them through, push them against God's word, uh, push them into what's called Christian orthodoxy. Let's do that. And let's see if, if, uh, if they're good, if they're true, if they're false and new, or if they're just out of the blue. And so we've talked about two of these so far. Uh, we talked about salvation and we just took a deep dive and said, what is salvation? Where does it come from? How do we respond to God? What, what does it mean to have our soul rescued by God? I had a long conversation about that. And then last week we talked about the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he's like and how we respond to him. Had a long conversation about that as well. So those are online, they're podcasts, they're on the app. They're all over the place. I encourage you to, uh, to dig into those if you haven't already. Uh, this weekend, I want to jump into a third one, and we're going to have a very kind of big conversation this weekend that I'm going to try to bring down to our everyday life. We're going to talk about the purpose of God and the purpose of man, the purpose of God and the purpose of man, because if you were evaluating your relationship with God, how you define the purpose of God and the purpose of man is going to deeply affect that evaluation. So how you define the purpose of God, the purpose of man, for instance, is going to directly affect how you read the Bible and how you translate what the Bible says into your life. It's going to directly uh, affect your definition of God's faithfulness and what you consider him being faithful in areas and other areas that you may think, well, he's not being faithful to me. And it's going to directly affect your definition of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. It's all going to be tied to the purpose of God and purpose of man. 
It's going to directly affect the investment of your life, what you would think of as a priority or not a priority. And it's all going to be tied back to that definition of the purpose of God and purpose of man. So it's really this foundational thing that really comes out and kind of kind of filters everything that we think and all the ways that we would respond in our relationship with God. So let me give you a for instance of this. Let me, let me show you this. So what's going to happen is you're going to run into parts of the Bible and based on your definition of the purpose of God and the purpose of man, you're going to react and respond, embrace or reject certain parts of the Bible based on what you think the purpose of God and the purpose of man is. So an example of this would be Romans chapter 9. So this is straight out of the Bible, Romans chapter 9. God says this, he says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? What, what, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Um, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common uses? Uh, when you come into a passage like that, based on how you view the purpose of God and purpose of man, it's going to be based on how you respond to that. If I just stood up today and I said, hey, this is the passage we're going to talk about, and I'm going to give a whole message on this sentence, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? We would tense up, right? Like for a North American, we're like, um, I don't know. That feels edgy or cringy. You'd be like, Jeff, could you talk about sex, money, politics, something? But like, do you, do you have to say that? If I looked at you and said, the Bible says that as a human being, you have no place to speak back to God. The Bible says as a human being that God is a potter and you're the clay and it is completely his right and prerogative to do with your life whatever he chooses to do with your life. I could extrapolate upon that and say, you realize God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. In fact, you should be just thrilled that God didn't wake up and condemn you to an eternal life in hell this morning. Everything above that is good news. If I looked at you and said, Jesus owes you nothing, he didn't have to die for you, he didn't need to die for you, uh, there's nothing about you that's worthy of him dying for. If I looked at you and said, and by the way, your life priorities are not God's life priorities. You getting into college is not, it's not the top of God's to-do list. You making varsity is not the top of God's to-do list. Your new house that you want is not the top of God's to-do list. We could do a whole sermon based on these things. And after service, if you set all the way through it, right, you might walk out. You might walk out and say, Jeff must be grumpy today. Uh, that seemed harsh to me. Can you believe how offended, uh, offensive he was? Why did I invite my friend to church this weekend? And frankly, if he wasn't so beautiful to look at, I don't know if I'd ever come back to Grace Church, right? Because that statement, based on our view of who God is and our view of human is, humanity is, could offend us deeply. And as, as kind of modern people, we're not used to being talked to that way. For somebody to look at us and say, who do you think you are to talk back to me, would set us back, right? We'd be like, wait a minute, I'll tell you who I think I am. I am me, who do you think you are to talk to me? 
God has the right to do with your life whatever he wants to do with your life. Wait a minute, it's my life. What do you mean he has the right to do with my life? It's not his life, it's my life. And based on our view of God and our view of man, we would come into a passage like this. I just picked this one as an example. And, and, and it could really push us back and really kind of set us almost at odds with God if we had our view of God and our view of man out of whack. So it winds up being this really, really big deal and a big conversation and an important one for us to, to walk through. I, I, I developed it into a question, so we're going to use this question. And, and here's the question that I want us to think through this weekend. Here it is. Do I exist for God or does God exist for me? And that's kind of a fundamental life question. Do I exist for God or does God exist for me? Is the purpose of God to respond to me? That when I pray or I want or I have a want, need, desire, that God's job is to do that. That God's job is to fulfill me. God's job is to balance me. God's job is to walk with me. God's job is to be responsive to me. And, and God's job is kind of to make my, my desires come true. Is that the purpose of God? Or do I exist for him? Is my job to praise God, to worship God, to glorify God, to exalt God, to serve God. Here at Grace, we would say, make Jesus make sense, right? Is my life lived for God and for his purposes and his design and his calling, or is his life lived for me? What's the purpose of God and what's the purpose of man? And how I answer that question and what I believe about that question will deeply and kind of permanently affect my life, right? Now, what I want to do here is I want to, I want to show you kind of the outcomes of each of, these things, each of these positions in Scripture, okay? And so I want to, I want to show you uh, one person who believed that God existed for him and another person who believed that God existed for him. And then we'll just kind of see which one kind of lines up more with the rest of Scripture and what we would call Christian orthodoxy, the rest of the, the long-term historical teachings of, of the church, okay? So we're going to go to Isaiah 14. If you got a Bible, you can open them there. And I'll put some uh, passages on the screen here. So Isaiah 14. So we're going to start with a person who believed that God existed for him. And we're going to call this the Isaiah 14 mindset, okay? The Isaiah 14 mindset. And the person we're going to be talking about is uh, Satan. <laughs> so we're going, to, we're going to look. So I might have just given it away, right? So we're going to look at Satan. And we're not going to talk about all the, the weird things you can talk about with Satan. But this is what I want you to know. In the scripture, the Bible is very clear that Satan is not like pitchfork, horns, pointy tail, red suit, nor is he like a demonic nun that breaks through the door and scares you in a horror movie, right? What the Bible says about Satan is that he was the most beautiful, powerful angel that God ever created. So Satan is a created being. He was beautiful. He is beautiful. He is powerful. And he was given his beauty and given his power by God. He also was invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. He was invited to have rulership over a part of the angelic realms. He was invited to be close to God. So Satan was blessed 
Satan was, was invited. Satan was appointed. Satan was given opportunities. And when he looked at all of God's blessings and all of God's gift to him, instead of receiving that with a gratitude that God would love him and do that for him, he received all of those gifts and all of those blessings with an entitlement. And he looked and said, these things are mine these things are mine and they're to be used for my purposes. And that's why God had to cast him and a third of the angels out of heaven. So in Isaiah 14, God is talking to Satan about this. And he says this, he says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. All of the blessings and all of the goodness and, and all of the gifts and even all of the invitation and all of the access that was given to Satan. When Satan came and he stood before God, before he's cast out of heaven, and he walked in to come to the throne room of God and he saw God seated high upon his throne ruling over everything, including himself, his response to God was, hey, God, I think you're in my seat. I want that. I am going to do that. You know what? I, I am going to say, I, in my heart, I will raise my throne. I want to be the focal point of it. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. Not, not God, not pointing attention to you or glory to you. I will do, you're kind of in my seat. I will do those things. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. God, I, I see your glory. I see your wonder. I understand that you created me. And everything that I have is given from you to me, but it's mine. And now that I'm in your presence, you're kind of in my seat. I should be there and you should be here because you exist for me. I do not exist for you. And there's things that I want. There's things that I desire. There's expectations that I have. And you are to meet those things for me. This is a Isaiah 14 mindset. Now, this is what happens. All of us, every human being, me especially, I'll double raise, every human being, me especially, is going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle with the idea that, that I, I want to be the center of all things, right? My mom used to say to me, she used to say to me, she called me Jeffrey. Jeffrey, she could call me Jeffrey. You're not allowed to call me Jeffrey. You can call me Dr. Bogue. She would say, Jeffrey, she'd say, she'd say, honey, the world doesn't revolve around you. Or if I threw a fit and I was like, mom, I want this. She would often look at me and say, how's it feel to want? Right? She was the most unsympathetic person. <laughs> I, there's a lot of counseling right there, but right? My mom was wonderful, but she would, she would remind me because I wanted the world to revolve around me. I still want the world to revolve around me. I'll go home and talk to Heidi in the evening and I'm like, aren't you absolutely curious and enamored with what I did all day? And she's like, no, I have a job. I was also doing something all day, right? 
But I think that way. You think that way. Every human being thinks that way. That I want what I want. And God, if you loved me, if you cared about me, if you were engaged in me, you would understand that who I am and what I want and how I function is so unique and so important that you need to respond to it, right? And so there's a temptation within all of us, right? It's a temptation. It's a temptation with all of us to have an Isaiah 14 mindset. Hey, God, I, I think you're in the wrong seat, bud. Let me up there for a minute and let me just remind you how the world and my life is supposed to work. And, and if you deliver for me, then that will validate your claims about yourself. Because the God I serve would never, the God, the God that I was faithful to would never, how could the God that I did this for do this to me? And it's an Isaiah 14 mindset where I am the center point of it. Now what's happened is over the last, let's call it 100 years or so, that temptation blended with that mindset has creeped into the church. And it's become a theology that is very widespread that many of us are affected by in great, great ways. And it's the mindset of this, that God exists for me. And because I believe God exists for me and that God, I am the center point, instead of God being the center point, it will affect the way that I go through life. For instance, it will affect the way that I read the Bible and understand the Bible. So I'll read the Bible and I'll read it from a perspective of me being the focal point of it. I'll look and I'll look into the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and I'll have verses in the Old Testament. And it'll say something like this. God has a plan for you to prosper you. And I'll look and I'll see that verse. I'll say, well, God has a plan for me. God wants to prosper me. Well, wait a minute now. That verse wasn't said to you. That verse of Jeremiah was said to a nation, to a country, not to Jeff. I'm taking it out of context. But I thought, but God wants to do that for me. No, God wasn't even talking about you when he said that. I'll read another verse, and it's a, it's a, it's a statement from God to a guy named Jabez. And, and, and he told Jabez, he says, whatever you set your eye upon, it's yours. Expand your territory, Jabez. And we'll look at that and say, well, my, my name starts with a J. It's Jeff Bez. And so th that, that must apply to me. Well, that didn't apply to me. That didn't apply to me. That was given, that was said to Jabez at a very unique time in the nation of Israel's history. It had nothing to do with an individual. Well, God wants to bless me and prosper me and make me wealthy. He did that for who? Well, for King David. Well, wait a minute, King David was a monarch leading a nation, not a person living in Ohio, right? Well, what about Solomon? All these promises, he said, all these things, that if you, if you follow me, Solomon, I will pour out blessing and riches upon you. Right, Solomon was a monarch. He was a government. And God was building a nation. It wasn't me. But if I believe that God exists for me, I'll read myself as kind of the main character of the Bible. I'm... I'm not David fighting Goliath. 
David was fighting Goliath. I'm not Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was in the lion's den. It doesn't mean that God won't work through me, but it also doesn't mean that my problems at work are my giant and God's going to throw a stone and kill my boss. And when I think of myself as the focal point of God's attention and activity, I'll read the scripture that way and then I'll be disillusioned that God didn't do the supernatural responsive things that he did there. I've been sowing my seed of faith for years and I'm still not rich. I've been claiming the promises that belong to somebody else that don't actually apply to me and I'm still not healed. That mindset then gets turned into a theology and the theology basically would say this, that what God wants for you is God wants you to be happy healthy and wealthy. And if you are happy, healthy and wealthy, then God is blessing you and God has come through for you because you somehow have figured out exactly how to, to respond and interact and, and allow those blessings to flow from God to you. Here's the problem. When you read God's word and you read it in a logical, theologically correct way, just kind of at its surface from the Old Testament all the way through the New. And then you look at Christian orthodoxy, you look at the history of the church, what you'll find is this, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in Christian orthodoxy did anybody ever teach that God's role in your life was to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. That teaching did not even show up until about 100 years ago in California. And it hit. And it hit because it feels good to the ear and it makes sense to our American mindset. That when I look at the Bible, the Bible is affirming me, telling me kind of what I want to hear and not offending me. And it's helping me be the best me that I can be. The problem is, is that it's not in there. It's not in there anywhere. And when you put it in a, just a logical context that God would talk to a nation, not to an individual. So God doesn't promise health and wealth. He doesn't promise that if you align yourself perfectly that he'll pour out his blessings on you. He says some of those things to Israel, but not to us. You know what Jesus promised you? Here's a promise from Jesus. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble and people will hate you for following me. That never makes the coffee mug, does it? <laughs> but that's a clear promise to you. There's one to claim. And so when we start there, we start with the question, do I exist for God or God exists for me? Even if I wouldn't say it out loud, if I kind of said it in my heart, well, God kind of exists for me. It lays out my expectations. It sets a filter of how I interact with God's word. It becomes a theology. A th theology is just a, a view of God or a, a truth strand of God. So it becomes a way that I think and interact with God. But when you push it back in, it's not there. It's not there. But it starts with that Isaiah 14 mindset. Hey, God, you and me, maybe we should switch seats. I know you bless me. I know you've given so much to me. I know you gave me Jesus. I know you saved my soul. I know that every good and perfect thing comes from you, but there's some more work that we could do. 
and I'm going to hold you to that expectation. Now you take that mindset and you contrast that with an Isaiah 6 mindset. So Isaiah 6, there's another guy that goes into the throne room of God. And this is the prophet Isaiah. So he has, he has a vision and he's brought before God and he's able, it's one of the few people on earth that's ever seen God kind of in his whole glory. And he's recording that in the scripture. And when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God, he has a, a different reaction than Satan. Satan walked in and said, hey, I think you're in my seat. Isaiah walked in, look at his reaction. Isaiah chapter six, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robes filled the temple. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Satan walked into the throne room of God and was like, mm, I think you're in my seat. Isaiah walked in the throne room of God and said, what am I doing here? I saw the Lord, he was, he was exalted, he was high and lifted up. And I, what am I doing here? Woe is me. I'm in the presence of a holy and righteous and just and perfect God. And this is not a place that I belong. I am sinful. I need rescued. I, I, I'm, I need ransomed. I, this is not a place for me. Because imperfection and perfection cannot coexist. And I am a man of unclean lips. And in that place of humility... And in that place of brokenness, God, so to say, reaches for Isaiah. And the angel takes the coal and touches his lips and says, you're forgiven. This God that has buckled your knees where you know you don't belong has now reached out to you in love. And he has forgiven you. He has atoned for your sins. He paid a debt he didn't know for those of us who owe a debt that we can't pay. And you are cleansed from that. And Isaiah, realizing the mercy of God and the grace of God and the wonder of God through the forgiveness of God, his response was nothing that related to, well, if you can now give me money and now take away my sickness and now just give me happiness. His response to the glory of God and the mercy of God was, what do you want me to do? Name it. I'll go. Here I am, send me. He said, here I am, send me, before God said what he wanted him to do. Predetermined yes. In light of you, I am nothing. And because of your grace and mercy, I exist for you. What would you have from me? See, the Isaiah 14 response is very, very different than the Isaiah 6 response. And when you read the Bible 
in a logical passing, not finding some weird verse that says some weird thing, but just a logical passing of the Bible, which is what Christian orthodoxy is. From the very beginning till now, people have looked and said, this is what this means. What you'll find is that man is created for an Isaiah 6 response, not for an Isaiah 14 response. In fact, 14 would be sinful, 6 would be appropriate. Where the appropriate response for a follower of Jesus Christ is to buckle our knees before the awesomeness of God, to receive the grace and the mercy of God with gratitude and with humility, and to live our lives for the God who loves us, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for he who died for me. And that position changes all of our thinking about our relationship with God. It changes all of our expectations about how God would interact with us. It changes all of our prayers. It will even alleviate your frustration and your discontentment in your relationship with God. Because when you realize, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong seat. That the potter does have the right to say to the clay, I'm going to mold your life into what I want it to be. When the clay embraces the hand of the potter, it changes the trajectory of the life investment of the clay. Let me just show you how this works out a little bit, right? So for instance, if I had the mindset that God exists for me, if that's kind of my starting point, my relationship with God, I'm gonna struggle with certain things. So for instance, if I had that mindset, I might expect God to remove my trials and resent the call to count them as joy. If I had that position, I would look at God and say, God, I have problems. I have real problems, not even petty problems, real problems. If you love me, you would take my problems away. Why are you taking my problems away? Why, I have financial problems, I have health problems, I have relationship problems. I have problems with my kids, problems with my parents, problems with my friends, problems with my marriage. You name it, God, I got a problem in it. If you love me, you're the God of miracles. Why won't you do this miracle for me? If I have the mindset that God exists for me, I will resent my trials. If I flip the mindset and say, wait a minute, I exist for God, then suddenly I'm embracing James chapter one. James chapter one, Jesus' brother writes this. He says, brothers and sisters, count it pure joy whenever you face a trial of any kind because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you are mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I have the mindset that I exist for God, I look at James chapter one and I say, woohoo, I got problems. And I can count them as joy. Why? Because God is maturing me. God is completing me. God is gonna allow me to do more for him, to bring more glory to him, more honor to him, more praise to him through my trials. My pain is the best platform for me to praise God. Because when you're rolling in it and you say God is good, everybody's gonna look at you and say, well, of course you think that. 
But when your life has been broken and destroyed and you say God is good, everybody's going to look at you and say, wait a minute, you must mean that. When I'm as healthy as healthy can be and I say God is good, well, of course you are. Look at you, you got no problems. When I'm the one who's fighting the cancer and I say God is good, when, when, I, when my marriage is on cloud nine and we've been married for three months and we're both so enamored with each other, everybody's going to say, yeah, you're newlyweds. When my marriage is on the rocks and we're fighting for it in 24-hour windows because we know it honors God and that's what we want to do, people are going to look at you and say, why are you making the decision that 50% of the planet won't make? In my trials... My ability to amplify God is much higher than in my blessings. But how I approach that is all based on what seat I'm in. Do I exist for God or does God exist for me? We can look at another one. If I believe that God exists for me, I might define God's love as his blessing me with earthly wealth and miss out on the opportunities to have him rescue my soul. If I believe that God, you got to bless me, bless me, bless me. And by that, I mean money, money, money. And I pray for money and I long for money and I sowed seeds of faith to get more money. And the guy said that if I had the right kind of faith, I was going to get money. Now let's just push this back into Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, where Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Why would the number one expression of God's blessing be money when one of the number one things Jesus says is it has no value? Why would you want that? Why would you go for that and lose your soul? It's almost as if it's harder for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's almost as if money can be the greatest deterrent in our relationship with God. If I believe that God exists for me, then I want him to give me what I want. If I believe I exist for God, then the capturing and the feeding and the expression of the soul is what drives me, see. God would look and say, I don't care that much about it. Well, God, I'm driving a Hyundai and this guy's driving a Beamer and God would look and say, I don't care what you drive. Well, God, you know, I'm, I'm wearing this logo on my shoe, whatever the Sam's Club logo is, and, and I'm wearing this one on my shoe, and God would be like, do you not know they're made in the same factory? I don't care what shoe you wear. Well, God, my house is this big, and my house is this big, and God would be like, it's your house on the planet. What difference does it make? My, me blessing you financially has nothing to do with my love or lack of love or your faith or lack of faithfulness. If I give you more, I expect more from you. You're just the caretaker of more of my possessions. Instead of saying, why don't we double our square footage? Why don't, why don't you look and say, why don't we double our investment in the kingdom? I don't understand your logic. You, you, you want more of that? And I gave you opportunity to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And you're going to get another boat? I mean, if you want a boat, get a boat. But that, that's... 
On the other hand, we'd say, yeah, well, give me some extra blessings, God. I'll give it. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because the more money we get, the more we hoard it. We spend it on ourselves. So God might look and say, you know what? What I care about is your soul. I care about your relationship with me. And let's be honest. In your circumstances, your best prayer life is when you broke. And I want to know you. And I love you enough not to give you earthly wealth. I understand how you struggle with pride. You grew up poor your whole life. You're sick of being poor. If I gave you a bunch of money, you'd just become prideful. And pride is going to separate you from me. So that my most loving thing I could do for you and your soul is to just meet your needs and keep you right where you're at. If I believe that God exists for me, that's going to offend me. If I believe that I exist for God, I'm going to realize that it's a platform for me. Where my gener- the poorer I am, the more my generosity jumps out. The more I'm interacting with God, the more dependent I am. Maybe the reason I don't have a ton of money is so that the people of the church can bless me. Because when I got plenty of money, I don't need to be blessed by anybody else. I don't need anybody to bear my burdens. I don't need my needs met. I just handle that. See? It flips the thinking based on what I believe God's job is and what I believe my position is. If I believe that God exists for me, I might despite light and momentary struggles and lose the eternal glory God is giving me a chance to gain. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. I might say, God, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. And God's saying, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to honor me in it, honor me in it, honor me in it. And the more you honor me, the more you're gonna make bank in heaven. Just get me out of it. Okay, but you're, you're not, that's what you want? Yeah, I I want that. Make this go away. And God would look and say, but you're losing a great opportunity to bring me glory and to make bank for yourself eternally. Why are you praying that prayer? If I believe that God exists for me, I might believe that this portion of life is what I was created for and forget that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life and it's God who created me for this very purpose. That's a, a partial quote of 2 Corinthians 5, 4. One of, the, one of the biggest places that we struggle in our relationship with God is in death. Where we would look at God and say, God, the highest expression of your love for me is if you keep me on the planet longer. Don't let me die. Heal this sickness or disease so that this person or I don't die. And the Bible would look and say, wait a minute. Do do you remember that actually what is mortal will be swallowed up by life? You're not alive until you're in the presence of Christ. You're not alive until after your mortal death. And it's God who created you for that. I remember when my dad was sick, I had a lady come to me and she found out my dad was sick and uh, he was in our house or taking care of him. And she said, I want to go in and I want to pray over your dad. I was like, okay, he would hate everything you just said. And she's like, I want to go lay hands and pray over your dad. I said, why? She said, because I want to call out the demons of sickness that are, that are afflicting him. And I'm like, lady, that's, 
that's a lot of demons in there. He had a bunch of issues. I'm like, I don't know if you know what you're getting into. She goes, I want to pray that, that God will give him life and that he will free him from his afflictions. And I looked at her and I said, why? So he will live for how much longer? Well, you want him to live, don't you? Dad's ready for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. I mean, what, what are you setting him free of? What's the, so he can get sick again and die? See, if I, if I believe God exists for me, I fear death. Scared, you gotta get me out of this, you gotta make this thing, you gotta make it go away. I fear it. If I believe that I exist for God, then I realize that what Paul said is true. I was created to be with God. I wasn't created to be on the planet. I was created to be with God. What is there to fear? Why am I praying this? Why am I afraid of it? Why am I not utilizing it? See, it flips the page. If I believe that God exists for me, I might struggle with the fact that none of the disciples or apostles had wealth or health or fame. They suffered and they thought of it as a blessing to share in the sufferings of Christ. This is one of the biggest things that we have to get a hold of in scripture. When you read the New Testament, none of the disciples, the, the 11 after Judas, right? So Judas betrayed Christ, took his life. So there's 11. Of those 11, none of them had wealth, none. None of them had health. In fact, 10 of the 11 died a martyr's death, horrible deaths, crucified upside down, burned alive, beheaded, thrown off the roof of the temple. Not one of, these are the men who walked with Jesus. Nobody had wealth, nobody had health. The one guy that lived out his life naturally was John. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and, and he died all by himself there. The apostles did not have health, wealth, or happiness. The apostle Paul, who's kind of the most famous of all the apostles, he actually writes in Corinthians a whole list. He's like, I've been snake bit, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been jailed, I've been hungry, I've been cold, I've been naked. And then he finally went to prison in Rome and was beheaded. You won't find it. Jesus had no wealth or health. Jesus, when he died, owned nothing save literally the clothes on his back. He literally died on the cross naked. So none of these people had those things and all of them said, the apostle said, you know what my great blessing is? I get the share in the sufferings of Christ. In fact, I count it joy. It's counted unto me as righteousness that I would share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because they had an Isaiah 6 mindset. When they walked into the throne room, they were like, what am I doing here? Whoa. I am unclean. I'm deserving of nothing. And God gave his son and Christ laid his life down and I have salvation and here I am, send me. And I don't need to go in a private jet. I just go 
In fact, Jesus said to his disciples when he was training them, he says, go and don't even take money with you. Let the people of God provide for you as you go. You won't find it anywhere. And the places in the Bible where God promises wealth and health, it's to a nation. It's in the Old Testament. It, it's not the expression of the church. And even those closest, where we would look and say, who could, who could do it better than these guys? They had none of it. Read Acts 27, 28. And you'll see the early church. And you'll see what they didn't have. And by the way, you'll see what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray for health. They didn't pray for wealth. If they prayed for their life to be extended, it's only so they could take another step and amplify God more clearly to more and more people. What they generally prayed for was the courage to face their own death and not recant their belief in Jesus Christ. Oh. It all depends on what we do with the question. Does God exist for me? Or do I exist for God? Am I the object of all that God wants to do? Or, or is God the object of all I want to do? And when I look at the wonder and the majesty and the power and the holiness and the righteousness and the otherness of God, the response for the Christ follower is thank you. I don't belong here. You loved me. You came for me. You came to rescue me, to ransom me. You gave your life for me. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? Who am I to go boldly into the throne room of God? You adopted me? And my response to your outpouring, your lavish goodness and grace is here I am. Here I am. I'll do it. The answer is yes. I don't even know the question you're asking. I'll do it. Never Never will you find the Isaiah 14 mindset. Give me, I deserve, I want. And when that creeps into our thinking and it creeps into our relationship with God, we need to double click on that. Right? We need to double click on that. And we need to ask, am I, am I succumbing to this temptation to look at God and say, hey, I think you're in my seat. And this is what I might encourage you to do. And the band is gonna come out and we're gonna spend some time worshiping this amazing God that loves us. This is what I, I would guess. I would guess if you got up and came to church this weekend, that if I said, do you live for God or does God live for you? I, I guess that, that you, most of us say, you know, I want to live for God. And so my, my guess is this, that most of this thinking th shows up in individualized circumstances. I want to live for God, but I'm really upset that God is not giving me the marriage that I wanted. 
I want to live for God, but I'm really, I feel like God pretty, I made a pretty big move in a friendship or relationship and, and it's really not working out. I, I was trying to be faithful with my finances and I made a commitment to whatever to build the kingdom of God and I lost my job. <laughs> What's that? This is going to show up like that for most of us. But in our circumstances, in different arenas where we wanted or expected something different, God on his throne gave us an opportunity to give him glory and to yield ourselves to him. And we kind of didn't want that opportunity. And it's those points that our relationship with God hangs up. And it kind of breaks down and it stalls out. And it's at those points where we we remember who it is. Who am I? The potter has the right to form the clay into whatever he wants. And I, as a human being, I, I don't talk back to God. I praise God. I worship God. I yield to God. I find God's will and I join it. So we worship and pray and sing. Wrestle that through. And ask yourself the question, do I exist for God or does God exist for me? Jesus, would you help us in these still moments? Holy Spirit, would you press in, reveal these parts of our hearts that we hold on to and keep from you and would you just remind us and in your love remind us of our place that we're at home following you and the places that we need to yield the places that we need to be open the places we need to confess lead us there and let us surrender anew to you